So we are drawing closer and closer to the end, not just the end of history, but the end of this sermon series. And so this morning, we are turning our attention to the final judgment. Our scripture comes from Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 to 6 and 11 to 15. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We love the word. That's why we read the whole book yesterday, and we're willing to read it again because it's so good, and there's so much in it for us to learn. So we're going to read a few portions of Scripture, uh, verses 4 to 6, and then 11 to 15. Let's read together in one voice. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Skipping down to verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, Standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Good reading. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the words in Revelation chapter 20. And Lord, these are hard words to hear. They are times of judgment. But Lord, we know that you're a righteous judge. We know that you are good as we sung today. Your goodness is evident for all of us to see. You have been patient with people. And yet there is coming a day when your judgment will come upon the earth and upon those who have lived on the earth and have died. And they will be resurrected and will be found before your throne. And Father, you will evaluate their lives and you will see if their name is written in the book of life. And so Father, we pray. I pray over this this church today that every person, their name would be found in the book of life that they would be gifted with an eternal life that lasts forever and not an eternal death. Lord, rescue the perishing, we pray. And so, Father, help us to be your great evangelists in this time and in this day. Help us to live with Scripture and the reality of it in view each and every day of our lives. So, Father, we ask for your blessing this morning. I need your help, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Well, just when we thought that history was reaching its climax with the Battle of Armageddon, we are reminded that there is still so much more to come. In fact, Revelation 20 functions partially as a false ending. 
And as we read, we arrive at this place of, we're expecting a place of closure, but in this one chapter, the timeline expands by a thousand-year period, which is called the millennia. Now, some consider this to be a literal thousand years, while others believe it to be a figurative thousand years. For example, people will be quick to quote 2 Peter 3.8, which says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Well, that might be the case, but we will never fully know until this narrative unfolds in our lives. The millennium will begin after the battle of Armageddon when Satan will be chained and incarcerated in the abyss and Jesus will rule and reign on the earth. Amen? And this period will end with Satan's release from the abyss 1,000 years later and the recapitulation of one final end time battle, a prophetic war like the one against Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Fortunately, As you've seen through the book of Revelation, as we've preached through the book of Revelation, we cannot make predictions. We just don't have that capacity. We're waiting for the rapture to take place. Then all of these things will unfold. We cannot completely decode or identify those who were involved in this battle. All we know, it's a battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. And all we can say with confidence this morning is that the script has been already written, both in Ezekiel and now in Revelation. Jesus, my friends, is victorious. Satan is forever defeated. He is thrown into the lake of fire to join the other members of that unholy trinity. The beast and the false prophet, now the dragon, is there in that lake of fire. And after the millennium, we arrive at that time called the final judgment, when every person will stand before the throne of God to receive an eternal verdict. What will God say over our lives? This morning, I want you to view your own life in the form of a biblical timeline, from the very beginning of your life at conception to the very end at eternity. Let me draw your attention to three examples of twos, three examples of twos, two births, Two resurrections and two deaths, and they're related to the scripture we read, Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6 and 11 to 15. First point, there are two births. Now we look at a different scripture, John chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. In the scripture, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked a very good question. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. But Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. For flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. This is the same John who received this revelation from Jesus Christ And it's assumed in Revelation 20, and we we start to revert back to other things that John has written and other things John has said in order to understand his salvation theology behind his end times theology. This conversation is between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. It's a crucial conversation because it talks about the final judgment. When it comes to your first natural birth, it is entirely beyond your control. I sometimes meet people, I've heard somebody say this before, I remember the day I was born. No, you don't. Okay. No, you do not. 
In my family, I'm the second of two children. My older sister, Carol, and, and I were separated by 11 years. That's a huge gap. She was born in India, and I was born in Canada. And I've always thought that it would really be nice and ideal if my sister and I could have been born closer in age and proximity. And then I wonder, would my life be very different than it is now? Maybe, but maybe not. Instead, I have surrendered to the fact that my conception, that my date of birth, was preordained by God before the foundations of the world. Natural birth comes to pass in cooperation with an earthly father and an earthly mother, but conception itself, friends, is the gift of life, and it is the, God's creative genius. It's his idea. So conception starts with God. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 2 says there is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die. Well, then when it comes to your second spiritual birth, it is entirely within your control. No one can force it upon you. Nobody can really force you and make you a Christian. You have to believe for yourself. You have to confess with your own mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's your decision. How many know that you can be biologically alive in your body, you can be psychologically alive in your mind, but you can be spiritually dead in your soul? It's true. Now, your decision to be born again does not mean re-entering the womb like Nicodemus thought, but it is to be born of the water and to be born of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So why is this second birth so important? Well, a second birth has a great significance upon your life because it has a great bearing on your eternal destiny. The decision you make today has a great effect on your eternity one day in the future. So it is in the context of this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus that we find that most popular Bible verse, John 3, 16, all the way to verse 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall what? Shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then we continue. Verse 18, we often omit this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So to be born again is to believe in the son of God. It is to experience the love of God firsthand because he has given his son for us. And so this day you must choose. Choose salvation now and avoid the condemnation that is to come. Second point this morning, there are two resurrections. We find this in verses 4 to 6 of Revelation 20. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. 
Now, as I was reading the Word of God, as I was reading the book of Revelation, I couldn't help but become confused. Become confused about the resurrection of the dead. Is it one event? Is it two events? Is it three events? What's the story? What's the record? Well, according to the book of Revelation, we see three distinct resurrections. I know I said there's two, but listen for a moment. There's three. Aside from Jesus' own resurrection, which is the model resurrection. If we're holding to our view, a premillennial view, that there is a rapture, our belief in this rapture suggests that the dead in Christ will be raised first, and those living in Christ will be caught up second. Do you believe that today? In other words, the rapture and the resurrection are simultaneous events. Now, this is for the rapture people. There's other resurrections in the Word of God. We need to unearth this truth today. But then as soon as the tribulation begins, there will be a seven-year period for a new group of unbelievers to come to faith. And yet all those who do come to faith will be martyred for their faith. So listen, if you don't decide to follow Jesus now, you will endure the tribulation. You will have a second chance at choosing Jesus. But you will have to endure all sorts of types of wrath. And then on top of that, you're going to die. You're going to be put to death. These are the ones who will reject the worship of the beast and the mark of the beast. And so having missed the initial rapture, yet having believed during the tribulation, we logically wonder how will they receive their inheritance unless they too are resurrected from the dead? That just makes logical sense. John's parentheses in verse 5 are critical for us distinguishing between the two numbered resurrections. So what I'm saying today, there are two numbered resurrections, but there is a resurrection prior to that, which is the rapture. The Apostle Paul is not as detailed as the Apostle John because he was not the one who received this revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul did see Jesus, the living Jesus, in a sense. He revealed himself to him on the Damascus road, but he did not see what John saw. This is what makes the Apostle John unique and the book of Revelation so valuable to us. See, the resurrection of post-tribulation believing martyrs is called the first resurrection. And the resurrection of post-millennium after the thousand-year reign, unbelievers is called the second resurrection. So two resurrections. And every, any resurrection previous to that is not numbered. Okay? So if you're a believer, you are not a part of either of these resurrections, the numbered ones, because you fall into the grouping of being a raptured people. And if you die between this period now until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you die and you're buried, you will rise again. As an aside, let me remind you of the mass resurrection that took place after Jesus' own resurrection in Matthew 27, 51 to 53. Listen to the scripture. It's pretty awesome. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from bottom to top. Oh, top to bottom, sorry. Small things. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Wow. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. This is the power of the resurrection. 
I'll also add the resurrection of a woman named Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, by Peter in Acts 9, 31 to 36. The resurrection of Eutychus by Paul in Acts 20, verses 7 to 12. These are all resurrected people, yes? However, none of them had glorified bodies. They would live again, but they would not live forever. They would die again. This is not the end times resurrection we're waiting for. These are miraculous resurrections. So we need to distinguish between the two. The miracles and the signs and the wonders of resurrection, and then the end times resurrection. So yes, according to Revelation, we see three valid resurrections for three different groups of people at three different times. Eternal verdicts cannot be decided until every single person that has ever lived and died is resurrected. According to the diffusion of innovation theory by Everett Rogers, there are five stages of adoption to change. 2.5% are the innovators. 13.5% are the early adopters. 34% are the early majority. And 34% are the late majority. And 15% are the laggards. Okay? Now we take this model... We superimpose this on Christianity. We come up with this, and it's my creation, the diffusion of resurrection theology. <laughs> See how we can redeem these things, these systems and frameworks? I'll tell you why. The apostles were the innovators. Christians from history past were the early adopters. The present-day believers are the early majority. Tribulation martyrs will be the late majority, and unbelievers were and are and will be the laggards. Do you understand what I'm saying today? Which of these three last categories will you belong to? I know you're not an apostle, so we got that out of the picture. And I know you're not a Christian from the past, so we got that out of the picture. You're a present-day believer, many of you. But there are some in this place that will choose to be believers at a later time during the tribulation. And then there's some people who will never choose to believe. Doubters, laggards. Friends, I hope you will not find yourself among the laggards, nor would I recommend you finding yourself among the late majority. I would rather you find yourself among the early majority. For example, I thought, let's look into Scripture. Let's consider the resurrection prospects for two criminals that spoke to Jesus while on the cross. Luke 23, 39 to 43, one of the criminals who hung there uh, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Well then, what the question is, when will these guys be resurrected? The faithful one will be resurrected as an early adopter with us on the day of the rapture and the day of that time where the resurrection of the dead happens simultaneously. The faithless one will be resurrected on the last day, on the day of the last resurrection, the second resurrection. And John describes those who experience the first resurrection as blessed 
and holy, you can imagine what the destiny is for those who don't believe, for those who don't trust in Jesus, for those who are part of that second resurrection. So there are two numbered resurrections. There are three resurrection events in Revelation, but the resurrection rapture is the best choice of them all. Choose that today. Third, there are two deaths, and we see this in verse 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, plural. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, everyone, everyone, irrespective of greatness, irrespective of your smallness, how you perceive yourself, every person dies. Every person dies. Unless you're raptured, every person dies. And this physical death is considered our first death. However, the irony is that everyone who dies lives. Everybody who dies will live again after death. The real question is, where will you live? Where will you live? In what realm will you live? Once we die, the spirit of those who are in Christ are instantly in the presence of the Lord, while the body decays here on earth. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8 separates the body from the soul after physical death. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith and not by sight." We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This, the reuniting of the spirit and the body only happens at the time of the resurrection. And this is the moment when believers will receive a glorified body. Are you excited for that glorified body? I'll tell you why. I'm really excited because I'm waiting for the six packs. <laughs> I really am. So I'm trying to, you know, you see, I'm trying to, cut down here a little bit, but I can't wait for the six-packs. Like, I've always dreamed of that day. And so um, some of you are with me. You're like, amen, pastor, me too. Six-packs. Six-packs for everybody. (laughs) Oh, man. The only example we have of a glorified body is that of the resurrected Jesus. And after three days of lying in the grave dead, he has risen again to live again. And what did Jesus look like and what could Jesus do following his death and resurrection? Good question. Luke 24, 36 to 39 documents. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And they were startled and they were frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. See, Jesus was a visible Jesus. He was not translucent or effervescent like a ghost. 
He was uh, physical. You could touch him because he had flesh and he had bones. And this is confirmed by that doubting Thomas, the one who needed all the empirical evidence in order to believe in the resurrected Christ. We find it in John 20, verses 27 to 28. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, realizing that it was all true, my Lord and my God. According to Luke 24, 42 and 43, those with the resurrected body will be able to eat. Ah, yeah. They gave Jesus a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. This is the evidence. This is the evidence. And this confirms that you and I, once we receive these glorified bodies, that we will partake in a glorious meal called the wedding supper of the Lamb, and it's going to be good. And if this is what the glorified Jesus is like, then this is what we will be like when we receive our glorified bodies. It's good news. Unlike Jesus, there will be no need for us to appear to others in order to validate our resurrection. We will simply be with Jesus in heaven until he creates that new heaven and that new earth, and we will reign with him. I say all this today to stress the fact that we will be conscious after death, and once we are resurrected, we will have glorified bodies. We will be fully aware of God's eternal verdict upon our lives before that great white throne. And this is that heavenly courtroom scene where God is seated on the throne as the righteous judge and there are books open before him that he will use to account for the works of every person. Certainly unbelievers will be judged, but will Christians also be judged in the same way? Well, these verses are not advocating a theology of works by which we earn ourselves a spot into the elite of heaven. There will be an evaluation of three aspects of the life for all who lived here on earth. Three things. The first, found in Matthew 12, 36 to 37, the scripture tells us that we'll be judged for every empty word we have spoken. Guard your tongue, because the Lord is going to evaluate the words that come from your mouth. Secondly, 1 Corinthians 4, 5 tells us that we will be judged for the motives of the heart. Guard your heart. Guard the things that motivate you to do things, the things that you internalize. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 tells us we will be judged for the things we have done, both good and bad. Guard your deeds. No matter what you've done, your good works will never make you worthy enough to receive eternal life. It is only by faith alone in Jesus Christ that we are saved. But when believers are judged, they will not be found guilty, but instead will be found innocent because their names are written in the book of life. And like a lawyer, Jesus has already provided all the circumstantial evidence necessary with his shed blood and his testimony that speaks a better word over us, that we live and we will not die. Woe to all those who fail to put their faith in Christ alone. Scripture in Hebrews 10, 31, it says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's a dreadful thing. It is. 
Revelation 20, death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire to accompany the beast and the false prophet and the dragon that is Satan. And likewise, anyone whose name is not found in the book of life will also be cast into the lake of fire. My friends, this is the warning. You don't want this to be your destiny. Having already died the first death, this will be the second death. And just as eternal life is a constant, so too eternal death will be a constant. Revelation 20.10 explicitly describes they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You want to avoid this. Friends, we are all born, but life is in vain if we're not born again. We will all be resurrected, but our resurrection is in vain if we are sentenced to eternal separation from God. Friends, we will all die, but where will we spend our eternity? As we conclude this morning, since it is our generation service, we're always working on something special to share with you. We have a special video this morning to talk about the brevity of life, the reality of hell and the resurrection, and the promise of eternal life for all those who believe in Jesus Christ. As 1 Thessalonians 4.13 encourages, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. See, we have a hope. Three of our very own congregation members want to share their personal story with with you. There is a senior regarding the loss of a spouse, an adult regarding the loss of their child, and a teenager regarding the loss of their grandparent. Let's watch this video together. Hello, I'm Bob Thomas, and I'd like to tell you about Marilyn. She was my sweetheart, my buddy, my best friend in the world, my laughing partner, my singing partner, and my prayer partner. We'd been married 58 and a half years when she unexpectedly passed away in April of 2017. On April 13th, 2012, my wife Elizabeth gave birth to our second son, Josiah. We knew before his birth that he had serious heart defects and our doctors gave him a narrow chance of reaching his first birthday. After three open-heart surgeries and a lengthy stay at SickKids Hospital in Toronto, Josiah returned with us to Kitchener as the medical community finally exhausted all other options of helping him. Against all odds, Josiah continued to fight for life. We threw a big party for him on his first birthday right here at WPA and celebrated God's goodness with dozens of family and friends. Three months later, the morning of Saturday, July 6, 2013, Josiah suddenly passed away and entered eternity at almost 15 months of age. Everything surrounding the passing of my grandma was really difficult and kind of scary for me. I was extremely close with her and I never imagined life without her. So the moment she did pass away, I felt like my entire world was turned upside down. Let me tell you, I was crushed. And yes, I was grieving. But at the same time, I was rejoicing. Why? Well, she knew and loved the Lord Jesus, and I had the absolute assurance from God's word that she was now in the presence of God in her new heavenly home. 
Honestly, I kept a lot of what I felt to myself. I just never felt comfort in what other people had to say about her being in a better place. Because honestly, I didn't care. Sure, she may be in a better place, but she's not with me and I was a mess about it. At his funeral, we played a version of the song, Farther Along, which includes the words, Farther Along, we'll know all about it. Farther Along, we'll understand why. We were blessed to have Josiah in our life, and we think of him every single day. We don't understand everything, but our blessed hope is that one day we'll meet again on that side of eternity. After a lot of time and thinking alone, I found my comfort in daydreaming about the future and growing up and making her proud so when I do see her again in eternal life, she can see that I followed through to be the person she raised me to be and live the life she would want me to live. Scriptures assure me that someday I can see her again in that special place. Wow, exciting promises from God himself, and they are good because he is good. For those of us who have lost a loved one, there's comfort in knowing that Jesus is coming soon. This is exactly what gives us hope in seeing those who have died in Christ live again. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's good news. Amen. Can we appreciate those three people for sharing their story? And so the question is this morning, do you have that hope? Are you born again? Do you have confidence that you will be resurrected to be with Christ? Do you believe that you will receive eternal life? And so in the sacredness of this moment, would you bow your heads with me today?